0: Hi, I'm sitting at home in my flat in Stockholm and thinking about the year that has passed since I started making this podcast. I feel incredibly grateful for all the conversations I was allowed to record with the 43 people who spent an hour each talking to me. I started to explore life as a freelance cellist at a time when social distancing was still a thing And I didn't have a network of musicians here where I was living. These interviews therefore served as valuable input of motivation and gave me a feeling of being a part of a community, even though I couldn't see it clearly with my own eyes at the time. In this episode today, I'll mention several of the guests I've had on kind of tying the past year together and look at it as a whole. So this might be interesting if you're a music student or someone who is curious about what some various income streams might be as a musician. So now we are just out from social restrictions and I'm free to be out and about and meet people. One way in which I've noticed this is that I was suddenly contacted by more people regarding cello lessons. Private teaching has been growing for me and it's what I'm making money from so far. Some found me via the online marketplace, which here in Sweden is called Blocket. Some found me by searching on the internet and found my website. And at least one actually found me through the posters I've been putting up on noticeboards. Pupils come and go, but I see there is potential for having teaching as a main income stream. For the first several months I was a very flexible teacher as I wanted to offer a low threshold to as many pupils as possible and I only took paid per lesson. I rescheduled at a short notice and I didn't charge for lessons that were cancelled by the student shortly before the lesson. But now I have tightened things up a little. I encourage people to buy a pack of lessons and I charge for the lesson if it's cancelled less than 24 hours in advance. Teaching is not just the easiest for me to get into as a freelancer, but it's something that I genuinely enjoy and get energy from. It's very useful for me as a cellist as well, since I am confronted with my own knowledge and ability to put words to processes I'm used to doing, rather than talking about. Several of the guests on this podcast also teach, such as Anastasia Resvalje-Eva, In episode four, Kaja Drexler in episode two pointed out that pupils today know so much because of the internet. And this is interesting, I think, what the internet does to teaching. I sometimes have a pupil come and mention a YouTube channel where someone teaches a certain song on the cello, and I'll have to admit that I have no idea about this YouTube channel uh, or really any cello-related YouTube channel at all. So I've spent some minutes in the YouTube universe getting a tiny impression of what's there cello-wise, concluding that I'm probably better off focusing on what's outside of the internet rather than in it, or rather I can find it potentially useful to occasionally dip another toe into that jungle, um, but I'm careful to not get lost and lose my focus. The internet also provides websites packed with useful information for cello teachers, where teaching material that someone has gathered throughout decades of teaching is presented in a way that allows me to get a better idea of what's out there regarding cello teaching material, because there's really a lot out there. After a year now, I've experienced how different pupils relate to different material. And I hope that my intuition improves and helps me to understand quickly what type of music and method might appeal to different pupils who get in touch with me. I sometimes wish I could remember more from my early years of learning to play the cello. I started when I was nine, but I can hardly remember anything and nothing of what my teacher told me and how she put words to things. I can remember what I enjoyed playing at home, what I'd be happy to practice, but I can't remember any teacher ever telling me exactly how to place the cello in front of me, exactly how to apply rosin into the bow, and other details that I'm now asked about and I just have to do my best to describe my approach to. It. I really appreciate how teaching then increases my awareness of what I do. As a cellist, Wilma Pistorius in episode 3 has lots of experience with cello teaching and she has generously shared plenty of teaching material and websites with me. And I have a decent library of material and I'm getting better at knowing what to have spare copies of for the very first lessons. I had a tendency to overestimate the abilities of a beginner cellists and I've been confronted with how. It actually is the start to play an instrument from the very beginning, maybe without any previous experience with music making. I've been afraid that the pupil would become bored, and therefore I would easily give too much repertoire su- too soon. I think this is because when I was little, uh, attending school, I was chronically bored and I felt ignored by teachers who never had the attention to give to me, uh, but now I I have a better balance I think, where I take it easy with the beginner pupils, but I do my best to detect their comfort zone each lesson and to work at the edge of that zone to avoid getting stuck in what's comfortable. I also assume that because the beginner is an adult, they learn quicker (laughs) for some reason. I think I've scared some pupils away that way. I've handed out sheet music without knowing what it actually means to not know how to read sheet music. When reading sheet music has been a norm for the past 23 years, it looks so easy to read that I imagine it makes sense to everyone. But I've now become more accustomed to what it entails to not know how to read sheet music. Before giving my first lesson online via Zoom, I talked with Alexandra Bobrovska in episode 9 for some advice. If I'm only dealing with my cello, I feel rather safe, but when modern technology is involved, I'm definitely out in deeper waters. Alexandra had a lot of online teaching during the pandemic, and it was reassuring to hear her talk about taking the possible issues as they would come and to not stress. After all, there's not much I can do with the Wi-Fi connection or anything else that can happen. Uh, My job is to teach cello playing, so yeah, stick with that. And it went well, and I feel confident that I'm able to offer a cello lesson also via the internet. I've now actually just started to make tutorials on cello playing that I'm thinking of eventually putting on a membership area on my website, And this comes from wanting to explore different types of income streams. And listening to Sarah Jeffrey in episode 19 talk about the increase in online work she did when the pandemic had in real life events cancelled inspired me to be open to using the internet more in case something like this happens again. Sarah, of course, has tons of experience by making her YouTube channel, Team Recorder, and hearing her talk about. Anything makes it sound like anything is possible as long as you put in the work. She has this positive attitude to everything. So there is a lot that can be said regarding teaching. And it's something that will stay with me and grow I think for many years to come. I've also started a second term in a job I jumped into last year where I teach adults one evening a week. Both individual lessons and group lessons. This is a great experience For me, it was daunting to say yes to giving group lessons, but I'm glad I took the challenge and I'm glad they are adults rather than children. I'm avoiding groups of children as much as I can simply because the thought of it doesn't at all appeal to me. Maybe this will change later, I don't know, but I feel good in this particular job. It energizes me and I learn a lot from it myself. And there have been some guests on this podcast, such as Jugherdo Melan and Bill Small, who came to realise that teaching was not very rewarding for them and they would rather earn their living in other ways. I've had this experience as well when I did my degree in music pedagogy and as a part of that spent two weeks only in music classes in a primary school. That experience made me aware that being in charge of a classroom full of kids, even though the subject was music, was not in my interest. I can't make a living only through my teaching, at least not for the time being. And even if I could, it would still be a good idea to have more than that one income stream. Most of the guests on this podcast make a portion of their income through performing. Maya Friedman in episode 14. Skidmore in episode 25, and Nina Grigorieva in episode 34, among others, are making their own projects and are finding venues to perform in. This was never a part of my life, uh, and it's been interesting for me to hear about these very different types of being a performing musician. It's such a vast world of expressions and audiences. And I have a lot of respect for those who take the time and effort to keep in touch with their audiences and take them along on the journey. Some of us make their own services, such as Kim Godrager's voice activation workshops, which you can hear about in episode 18. Or Anthony Dunstan's gatherings of combining music and food, which you can hear about in episode 21. Or Isabel Anderson's courses in music production for women, which you can hear about in episode 39. Another way of earning a living is through orchestral playing, which Alexander Ryder talks about in episode 17 and Leah Tagami Andonov in episode 26. I felt inspired. Uh, after talking with Leah to uh, attempt to include orchestral playing in my freelancing. So I took her advice and I performed the audition repertoire every day for two weeks prior to the audition. I don't know if that was a good strategy for me, though, because I just got seriously fed up with the Haydn D major concerto prior to the audition. But it was anyway a good experience. I never make it past the first round of orchestra auditions. I guess it's not for me. And then there were gigs such as weddings and funerals and so on. I haven't made a serious attempt at getting into this really. In the beginning it was because social distancing put everything on hold anyway. But I also felt discouraged by the way in which it seems to be an area where the jobs are taken by the insiders. I was doing some research Into it, And I found that regarding funerals, music is often provided by a company who has their list of regular musicians. I wrote them, but they said they had enough cellists for the time being. I followed some cellists on Instagram and I could see that there seems to be a community of freelance musicians who all know each other and get gigs. When I see someone looking for wedding music in a Facebook group, there are always plenty of replies by the time I see the post. It seems like a feeding frenzy almost uh, that I've seen in documentaries where there is a lot of sardines in one place and then all the predators come to catch as many as they can within a fairly short period of time. But I don't have actual experience yet. I just have the impressions I have. I also see the ways uh, in which I'm kind of lazy. I mean, I really feel motivated to make a living as a cellist and I feel fairly open to try different things, but certain things makes me want to find an excuse to postpone pursuing those certain things. Jumping into the wedding gig thing is one of those things. Although I'm now in a quartet where we aim to eventually get some of these gigs. And it it really helps to be more than just me in this case. We can gather our forces and spur each other on. Another of those things I find I'm avoiding a bit is Anything that involves applying for funding, forums, just makes me want to cry. Inga Margretos in episode 5 and Gåste Tamerlunajte in episode 35, among others, have this skill to apply for funding for their work as artists. Maybe it doesn't feel like a skill to them, but it does to me. I've also recently signed up with an accounting firm to do my taxes for me, because even though several of the guests on this podcast manage to do their own taxes, I can't. I haven't been able to rise above this uh, disgust, I feel, when I have to deal with forums and numbers and funny words. Some of us are building their communities, such as Martin Pascino in episode 8. I hope that's also what I'm doing. This podcast has put me in touch with several musicians here in Stockholm. And once in a while I reach out to venues to say that I exist, which is easier now that art is back on the scene in real life. I attend events I can relate to, mostly to do with contemporary music. And I'm open to meeting people and to find an artist I could potentially collaborate with. Some of us are owning their skills and songs, such as Stefan Becklund in episode 27. I really hope that's what I'm doing too, Uh, honing my skills, I mean. Only three months ago, I started to rent a rehearsal space where I'm free to play loudly, and I hope I'll make the money back because it feels amazing to have this designated space for me and my instrument. I also teach there, which feels great since it's not in my cozy but cluttered living room full of distractions. Some of us are rather underground as musicians, such as Callum Plowright in episode 22. I used to be rather underground myself until about a year ago. It was very comfortable. I had a steady salary coming in and my cello playing was only for me and there was no pressure and I could decide myself what to play and when. When the pandemic hit, my salary remained steady and I felt lucky to not be a musician at that time. Uh, some of us combine music making with something not music related, such as Kasper Svall in episode 33, who has a yoga studio. Lepa Kaslowskarte in episode 29 is a biologist, and Bill Small in episode 36 also has a coaching business. In my dreams, I'm also a tattoo artist, a yoga instructor, and something that puts me into contact with penguins. But in this lifetime, I seem to be combining music with taking the occasional shift as a personal assistant, and that works well for me. A topic I've enjoyed bringing up is social media. I've been on and off Facebook myself, enjoying how it feels to be on it and to be outside of it and realizing that no one knows when my birthday is. For the past year, I've for the first time had a profile on Instagram and LinkedIn. I was just thinking I should try different platforms and see where I'd be happy to explore and socialize. Facebook has been useful because of groups serving as notice boards for local areas here around where I live and have posted on these notice boards as a cello teacher. There are also various groups for musicians and where... uh, Gigs and events are advertised. I really have not made the most of this. Because I feel exhausted as soon as I log in to Facebook. But I now have a habit of logging in almost daily. And uh, I check possibly useful notifications. And I interact with one or two posts in my feed. And that's maybe five minutes on a daily basis. I'm not posting often, but I have... Lots of material on my profile and my page for anyone who'd be looking for a cello teacher or cellist on Facebook. And I think some actually do. That's my impression so far. I have not put any work into using LinkedIn. I just have a profile there. I think it could be very useful if putting in the work and actually do some networking and exploring. But it hasn't appealed to me yet. I think I've found it hard enough to deal with the other platforms. So there hasn't been energy left for LinkedIn. Because I've also been testing Instagram, putting the words cello teacher in my name because I saw someone else had done that. But I haven't experienced anyone finding me as a cello teacher there yet. I anyway have a profile. As a cellist, if someone sees my poster hanging out in the city and wonder if my strange name suggests I am at least either a male or a female, they can get a small impression on me on Instagram. This is also the platform where I made a profile for this podcast. Why make an Instagram account for a podcast? It was Tobias Karlahag from episode 11 who suggested I do that, and I quite Like it. I mean, it feels really nice to explore Instagram through my podcast profile. It offers a certain intention to what I'm doing there and some courage. And the way that it's easy to reach out to someone and ask if they would like to be interviewed for a podcast rather than me as a cellist asking to meet up and talk. So I'll stick to my current pattern for a little longer. Not using social media, in my experience so far, can be really great (laughs) and inspire me to be out and meet people in real life and see what's going on rather than receiving a summary on the screen as well as save me from the overwhelming amount of information on these platforms that I think contributes to a poorer attention span, at least on my part. And rather than finding out about events via Facebook, I've had to look up the calendars of my favorite venues and actually talk with friends about what they're up to and what events they're attending. Kaya Drexler from episode 2 is not using social media. She performs live, records music and she sends out a newsletter via email. I genuinely enjoy reading her newsletter because, well, that's her chosen tool for verbally communicating with her audience. And I can at the same time appreciate the creativity that can be unleashed in social media. And how one's appearance there can be an extension of one's musicianship. Like Isabel Anderson talks about in episode 39. I haven't seen a lot of that. But when I see it, it can add to the way I experience an artist's work. But yeah, for the time being... uh, I don't want to spend more time with social media than I already do, which is at a practical level, I'd say. So yeah, I've found a lot of inspiration from talking to these musicians, but the one who has helped me the most is my boyfriend, Mohamed. He's a big fan of doing what one wants and make a living from it. He's been incredibly supportive and taken a genuine interest in what I've been working on, including me figuring out how to get out of bed in the morning when I'm in charge of my workday, familiarizing myself with software, uh, getting into making invoices and having some control over money going in and out, uh, improving my visibility as a cellist and to connect with myself as an authority actually. To not be too soft and quiet, but to step into the role of a cellist and teacher and communicate clearly and confidently. This also means that when a pupil doesn't continue taking lessons from me, I don't take it as critique of what I have to offer. I just stay connected to what is right for me and trust that the pupils who click with me will stay while others might find what they need elsewhere. I've set my prices with some thought going into it, so if someone finds it too expensive, that's okay. They can perhaps find something more affordable in other places. Mohammed is very pragmatic, wants me to have good solutions and not waste time. He's witnessed me trying and fumbling and slowly finding my way and he encourages me to keep on going. He makes me feel safe and he trusts that I will succeed. I feel like my journey is our journey. It's now been more than a year, it's going better and better steadily, and every day I feel gratitude and energy to continue. I like to think that I could have made this jump on my own, but I honestly don't know. I will find my combination of income streams, they are a lot clearer now already and there are some things I'm very excited about that I'm thinking about but I won't say anything yet until I know uh, yeah, what's happening. Aiming at being a musician for a living feels to me a bit like dealing with a map that is different from conventional maps. Some work here, some work there, something that brings money, something that doesn't bring money but potentially in the future applying for tax money while paying taxes, playing some easy notes for a lot of money uh, or performing a terribly challenging piece for no money, being too old-school or too avant-garde, not having a box or having many boxes, having questions for the tax office that can't answer, (laughs) like Raquel Nisterbak in episode 37. Buying boxes of whipped cream for a music video, like Pale Moon in episode 38. Bringing microphones outdoors and jam with the birds, like Inga Margrethe in episode 5. Cutting out pieces of paper and spending hours in iMovie making lyric videos for one's album, like Robbie Tucker in episode 30. Or putting on a photo shoot where a giant snail sits on your face, like Aaron in episode 24. And I find myself spending an impressive amount of time figuring out how to make a profile photo of my quartet fit the format and size required by YouTube. And it's all very thrilling. That's why we bother to do it. If you're still listening to this, you might also be curious about similar podcasts. I've had two English-speaking podcast makers on here so far making really nice podcasts. It's the Subtle Art of Not Yelling, co-hosted by Bill Small. And it's Girls Twiddling Knobs with Isabel Andersen. Inga Rettås is also co-hosting a podcast. It's a Norwegian-speaking one called Musik Company. Hanna Olsson from episode 31 is co-hosting a podcast in Swedish called Bandpodden. And Kaspar Swan also co-hosts a podcast in Swedish called Jodropodden. A link to all of these in the show notes. And if you want some new musical input, I've made a playlist on Spotify called The Musician's Journey Podcast with music by several of these musicians who've been sharing their stories with us here. In the next episode, I'll be talking with someone I perhaps should have talked with a year ago because that's another cellist and freelance musician living in Stockholm i get on with my day right now that means laundry even aspiring freelance cellists can use some clean clothes if you enjoy listening to this podcast and want to offer me something in return you can buy me a coffee via my page on coffee which is linked to in the show notes thanks for listening and take care